This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. A new statistic is giving shape to the devastation that many Americans are feeling from the coronavirus pandemic. Another 3 million people have filed for unemployment benefits. It brings the total over the last seven weeks to more than 33 million. And that's only the people who have succeeded in filing claims. The number of actual layoffs is likely even higher. Tomorrow, the Labor Department will release the April unemployment report, and even that may not fully capture the damage the pandemic has done. Megan Green is a global economist at Harvard's Kennedy School. Are we even going to want to look at this unemployment report? So I think tomorrow will be every bit as ugly as we all fear. Um, Most economists are expecting more than 20 million people to have lost their jobs over the past month. And this is the first month of payrolls data or or of non-farm payrolls data where we actually get the full brunt of an actual lockdown um, on the labor market. But I'd also say that we should see not only a big drop in um, the number of jobs, but also a pretty big jump in wages. Um, And normally you'd say a jump in wage growth, that's a positive story, but this time around it's not. It just reflects exactly who was hit initially by this crisis. And that was mainly the hourly services workers like waiters and waitresses who haven't had a whole lot of wage growth through the last recovery. So they already weren't really benefiting from um, all the spoils of all this growth that we'd had. And now they've been laid off. And so if you take out all the low wage workers, um, you know, you get you get much higher wages. But again, that's not a positive story. Are there things that can be done to mitigate that? Let's say it takes years to get back some of the 20, 30, maybe even 40 million jobs that will have been lost in this pandemic. Is there anything in the nearer term that can be done? So I think you're right. It will take years, Um, not only because some of these industries are just going away. Um, You know, a lot of retail, bricks and mortar retail is is not coming back, right? So you'll have to retool and reskill people so that they can find employment in other areas. Um, But also because a lot of firms are looking at this and taking the opportunity to actually automate as many jobs as they can. So those firms in a position to are trying to gain the technology um, so that they can have machines and robots do jobs that people used to do. And so that means those jobs will be gone forever as well. But there is something we could do to keep people attached to their employers in this kind of temporary freeze and downturn, and that's uh, work sharing programs. And work sharing is something that the Europeans rely on mostly in a downturn, um, whereby people agree to work fewer hours and then uh, they go and collect unemployment insurance to make up the difference in their incomes from working shorter hours. And they maintain a connection to their employers so that when the recovery comes, actually, it's much faster because, you, you know, companies don't have to go and find workers and train them up and get them used to the culture. They already have them in place. Um, and 27 of our states actually have work sharing programs. The problem is there isn't much take up uh, in large part because a lot of companies just don't even know that these exist. So it is something that sits alongside our unemployment insurance um, scheme, which is usually what we rely on in a downturn in the U.S. Um, it's just underutilized. And in the last fiscal package that Congress passed, actually, uh, there were provisions to beef up some of these work sharing programs and incentives to create new ones in states that don't have them. So we should absolutely be taking advantage of those. 
Will the unemployment numbers actually be indicative of how bad things are? So I think the unemployment numbers should be um, sufficiently shocking. I mean, I do think we'll see unemployment of over 15 percent, possibly 20 percent. I also don't think that's as bad as it's going to get. So this is the first report where we see uh, the full effect of the lockdown. But of course, this is going to last for a while. And so I do think we could see unemployment actually get up to around 30%, which again, we've never seen before. Um, So this will be sort of an introduction, but uh, it won't be the peak. Harvard's Megan Green joining us from Boston. Awful as it is, the loss of jobs is at least measurable. Other losses are impossible to calculate. We want you to meet Mike and Olivia. They're joining us from Philadelphia, and they're engaged to be married next month. Congratulations, guys. Thank Thank you. How'd you guys meet? You want to tell it? I know you like it. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun story. So I was coming down to the shore. I was a junior in high school. Um, I was coming down to the Jersey Shore from Maryland, and we stopped at the mall. Mike approached me with a group of girlfriends <laughs> in the mall. He was by himself. Wait, he picked you up randomly in a mall? He did. Yep. <laughs> so you planned a wedding for June, which is a great time to get married. Where Where are you getting married or where were you supposed to get married? The, when, the venue was supposed to be uh, the Park Chateau in East Brunswick, New Jersey. They still were giving us the option to have it that day. But obviously, if the government, state or federal government said we can't, then obviously... We wouldn't, they wouldn't be allowed to have us. So we just figured it would be a lot less stressful than trying to plan a last-minute wedding. Plus, we want everyone to be safe. <laughs> Did the venue give you any trouble? I mean, a little bit, but it's not like they were being, you know, it was nothing crazy. It was just, you know, obviously because we would have liked to have, because we had to move it to a year out. They were pretty cooperative and helpful, and they, you know, gave us some discounts and helped us out a little bit. Yeah, I know that the venues right now are under a lot of, um, financial stress, but sometimes for the couples, it's it's tough um, kind of seeing all your plans change in a few weeks or um, minutes for us. But the most important part is just getting married. So um, we'll, we'll see this as a, a story to tell our kids one day. And then you have sure. to manage expectations. You know, we're moving from a Saturday to probably a week weeknight. Um, now, so who doesn't love a Thursday night wedding? <laughs> Seriously, yeah, it, it'll still be fun. It'll be a nice celebration of our vow renewal, and you know, it'll be great. Olivia, Mike, we wish you well. There is a different reality, of course, for other families, the ones in this crisis who are grappling with loss, and it's particularly acute for the families of health workers who have died from coronavirus. There is now some help, though. Ted Mathis is the chairman and chief executive of New York Life, the storied insurance company. You started the Brave of Heart Fund. What is that? Yes, the Brave of Heart Fund uh, is designed to provide financial and emotional support to the families of healthcare workers and volunteers nationwide who lose their lives to COVID-19. And we know there are, sadly, an increasing number of those those families. I mean, there's a real need here. Absolutely. If you think about it, front uh, frontline healthcare workers and volunteers. Uh, unlike many of us who are trying to seek shelter, they knowingly put themselves in harm's way uh, in order to take care of us, in order to treat uh, COVID-19 patients. The families, the stress, the anxiety that they all have to deal with is tremendous. Uh, and they don't know, the families, if you know their loved ones are going to uh, come home okay. And we know, given their exposure, many of these 
uh, healthcare workers and volunteers are going to lose their lives. This is a rather ambitious project uh, because it involves potentially tens of millions of dollars. Can you talk about how it's going to be structured? Yes. So uh, New York Life partnered with Cigna, uh, and we did this because uh, this is a time when everyone really sh- is being asked to step up and do what they do best. So the healthcare workers are doing what they do best. New York Life is a company built on providing long-term financial security and being there for families. And Cigna is a company that is a health services company that does their work through healthcare professionals. And each of us decided to contribute $25 million to seed the fund with $50 million. Cigna is going to be providing additional emotional support, behavioral counseling for families and for the healthcare workers. And New York Life is going to be providing a dollar-for-dollar match. So we are encouraging other individuals, individuals out there to contribute uh, to the fund, and we will match that up to another $25 million in hopes of ultimately raising $100 million for this very significant need. How do people donate? The best way is to go to the braveofheartfund.com website, so braveofheartfund.com. They can learn more information. They can donate directly there. Um, also, healthcare workers can go to this site to learn about the program. Uh, what they will learn is that uh, initially they're eligible for a $15,000 grant from the fund to cover essential expenses like funeral costs, and they can apply for up to $60,000 of additional funds for longer-term needs like housing, educational expenses, and child care. Ted Mathis, chairman and CEO of New York Life Insurance Company, on the Brave of Heart Fund. And coming up, our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, is here to answer your questions about coronavirus. I'm Aaron Katursky, and you're listening to an ABC News special. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And with me, as always, is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we have heard a lot of talk about possible mutations of this coronavirus. What do we know about that at this point? Well, I want to get into some basic science, Amy, because we're hearing these headlines and they're attention grabbing because they scare people. But I want people to understand what they should think about when they hear about the word mutation and the coronavirus. Number one, this virus comes from a family of coronaviruses that is intrinsically prone to mutation just because it's an RNA virus. So this is what this class of viruses do. They mutate. Coronaviruses do mutate more slowly than other viruses compared to, let's say, influenza virus, 25 mutations a year for coronavirus, roughly. The flu mutates about 50 times a year. So that's some good news. Um, Interestingly, if you check the genome, the fingerprint of these viruses, it allows us to track the strains and find out where it's going, where it's come from. And remember, the most important thing right now, just because you hear that a virus has mutated, it doesn't necessarily cause a new strain. Right. So that's really important. And and what is it that people are researching that is raising some questions among scientists right well, now? Well, I think that the concern, Amy, is that as these viruses mutate, the theories are how is it changing the function of the viruses? So is that making the virus stronger? Is it making it weaker? Sometimes mutations can just be neutral. They don't have really any effect on function. Based on the tracking, really interesting, thus far, according to Scientific American, it appears that multiple 
multiple viruses, multiple strains of coronavirus entered the U.S. at different times and different places. This is really important mm. for these molecular scientists genetically to track these viruses so they know where they're coming from. Um, and that's going to be key as we follow the virus and, and how it behaves. Yeah, and Obviously, we say this every day, but there is still so much we don't know. Exactly. And it is important, again, chronological context. This virus is about five months old, so we are learning every day by the hour. In terms of what we still don't know, as this virus mutates, which it will, we expect that, we don't know how these mutations will affect the possibility of new strains. We don't know how these mutations may or may not affect a vaccine effectiveness, because remember, that's really the goal on our timeline here. And we don't know, of course, if some of these mutations may make the virus more contagious or more severe. Right now, there is no evidence of that, but obviously people are looking for that. All right, Dr. Jen, we'll be back with you in just a bit. We're going to turn now to Arizona, where just this week, the state experienced its deadliest day for COVID deaths, reminding everyone that this crisis is far from over, which is why some residents are concerned that lifting the lockdown orders too soon could have fatal consequences. Here now is the mayor of Tucson, Arizona, Regina Romero. And Mayor Romero, thanks for being with us. And even though the governor extended that stay-at-home order to May 15th, he is loosening, as we said, restrictions with barbershops and restaurants that are set to reopen in the coming days. You are among those who feel more restrictions should be in place. Tell us why. I think that we have to make decisions, policy decisions as elected officials based on data and uh, the information that public health experts are giving us. And so, um, unfortunately, Governor Ducey here in Arizona decided to uh, lift restrictions much sooner than what the data is telling us uh, we should be doing. At the beginning, he he was following the guidelines. He issued a stay-at-home order. Uh, But most recently, actually on Monday of this week, uh, he decided... Uh, to turn around those uh, those orders and uh, allow for uh, for businesses to, to start reopening, uh, restaurants can reopen their uh, dining uh, Friday, and then on Monday he will allow barber shops, nail salons, hair salons, and uh, spa services to open. And I'm very very concerned because Arizona, as you just said had one of the deadliest days um, that we've had on Tuesday. Uh, The numbers are not following the CDC guidelines issued by the Trump administration to have 14 days of continuous decline in cases and continuous decline in deaths. And so I'm very, very concerned. Um, And unfortunately, the governor in his uh, emergency Uh, order uh, really tight the hands of cities, towns and counties in Arizona to be able to call our own emergency proclamations um, and follow uh, our own restrictions. That's right. His uh, executive order preempts mayors throughout Arizona from making their own mandates. Also on Monday, by the way, the state's administration for health services disbanded a team of researchers who were advising state leaders on the impact of reopening. That agency claiming in a statement it determined it will rely on a model by FEMA to help the state respond to the outbreak. What are your thoughts on that? This is very concerning. There is no such thing right now in this pandemic as too much data. Um, The modeling team was made up of researchers 
and public health experts at the University of Arizona and Arizona State University. And uh, right now we have to rely on science. We have to rely on data. And so it's, it's very concerning. Um, we should not, and the gov Governor Ducey should not be making decisions based on his political agenda of reopening. All of us, all of the mayors throughout Arizona are very concerned about our economy. But, um, but you know, the continuation of the spread of, of COVID-19 will just continue pounding our economy if we do not do this right. And so um, I think the governor... Uh, should give the people of Arizona an explanation as to why he decided to do this. And uh, we should be following the CDC guidelines. Um, science matters. And so I, I think that uh, it was very, very unfortunate. It's also very frustrating that Governor Ducey is uh, really tying the hands of mayors across Arizona to make our call. And so it's... it's um, it's concerning, and um, I, I think that uh, having the deadliest day in Arizona on Tuesday should be uh, telling the governor and guiding the governor on the decisions he's making for all of Arizonans. Mayor Romero, you have done something really big. You've enacted the We Are One Somos Uno Resiliency Fund. Explain how that will help your county with recovery efforts. Well, uh, we just, um, the mayor and council of the city of Tucson decided to put in $5.5 million to our We Are One Somos Uno Resiliency Fund. And this fund help, will help small businesses and nonprofits with grants and uh, workers and their families with, with uh, cash assistance and help. And so, um, as I said earlier, it, it, it's very concerning to have an economy that is, um, that is the way that it, that it is because of, of uh, COVID-19. And so um, we are wanting to help, you know, especially workers and their families and, and those that have not been able to tap into any federal funds um, included in the CARES Act, uh, domestic workers, hotel workers, um, self-employed gig workers. That's, it's very, it's very concerning and it's hitting our community hard. And so um, I'm really happy that my colleagues on the council and I uh, decided to put $5.5 million uh, to help the community, small businesses uh, with con continuity grants um, so that they can prepare, they can pay their utilities, pay their workers and prepare uh, with all of the necessary equipment they need to continue physically distancing to open up if they decide to go that route. So we're very happy. Um, uh, the $5.5 million is only the beginning. We are um, also fundraising for this fund and um, asking uh, the communities and communities across Arizona uh, to contribute to, to the We Are One Somos Uno so that we can at least have uh, some help uh, for people that, that have lost jobs and that, that are being hit so hard by this economy. Well, we thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and your time today, Mayor Regina Romero. We appreciate it. And there is much more ahead here on what you need to know. The COVID slump, the psychologist educator who coined the term, joins us next. What she is suggesting for parents who worry their children's learning is now lagging in this pandemic. Coming up right here. This ABC News special 
COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back. Every year, parents and teachers work to navigate what we call the summer slump. But now they're experiencing an unprecedented issue, the COVID slump. Here to talk about ways for parents and teachers to overcome that is education researcher and professor of psychology, Dr. Kathy Hirsch-Pasick. Thanks for being with us. And we should give you credit. You coined the term COVID slump. Explain for us what specifically that is. Xavier, thanks for inviting me. Uh, COVID slump, as you say, is patterned after the idea of summer slump or summer slide, where we know that every child loses a little something academically over the summer months, because when they're not in school, they're not getting the textbook knowledge, they're not getting the teacher's help in learning those equations. Um, If you happen to be from an under-resourced environment, the summer slump can be quite extreme where you lose about 20% of what you learned over the academic year in reading and about 30% in math. So it can be somewhat extreme. Now, if you put the COVID together with the fear, the fact that our Herculean efforts our teachers are making, even though they'd never been formally trained to go online and make that a classroom, and that they're having time off from school, we can expect, I think, a similar slump. That makes sense. And I think a lot of parents out there are seeing it. They're feeling like their kids are falling behind potentially. What are some tips for parents? Ah, but there is a silver lining. (laughs) You see, not all learning is about the kind of learning that you do in a textbook and the kind of learning that you can test on a test. When you look at what corporations are looking for in the profile of a graduate, they tell us that they want a suite of skills that have become very important. So reviewing all the evidence a couple years ago, Roberta Golinkoff and I wrote a book called Becoming Brilliant, where we suggest the six C's. The six C's are operating in your house right now. Collaboration. Every time our kids learn how to navigate with their siblings to get on that computer, They're practicing collaboration. Communication. They have to get better at listening, not just speaking, and at writing. And when they do this, they're learning how to communicate much better. In our home, that usually turns into the three-year-old giving us the really best arguments he has for why we need to have pizza yet again for another night. Content's important. It's the math. It's the social studies, it's the science, and gosh knows we need it. But there's also learning to learn skills, like attention and planning and memory. And boy, if you can hold your attention to that Zoom call with all this going on in the background, you're doing learning to learn skills. Critical thinking. What can we substitute in that recipe to still make the banana bread come out? Creative innovation. The other day, my granddaughter, five-year-old Ellie, watched Frozen 2 for, I think, the 97th time. (laughs) And instead of putting it on yet again, I said, well, what would Frozen 3 look like? Can we write the script? By God, if she didn't. And then she asked me if we could write another book together, which we did. Not a great book, but what the heck? (laughs) And finally, confidence. That confidence involves the grit to stick to it. 
try to get at least some of those worksheets done. But I know parents, it's becoming impossible to do it all. And so what? Just say, can't do it right now. Look what else my kids are getting with the six C's. I love how you just gave us parents all those beautiful tips with all this positivity coming out of you. I feel like that just gave us all some confidence. Dr. Kathy (laughs) Hurtasek, thank you. You bet. Well, Dr. Jen Ashton is back with some answers to your coronavirus questions today. And we'll start with the first one, Dr. Jen. Mother's Day is coming up. Is it safe to sit at the dinner table at a distance with your mom if you've been taking proper precautions and quarantining? This is a question (sighs) that millions of people are asking. And myself, um, you know, I would love to see my mom uh, for Mother's Day. But you have to remember that, first of all, you're talking about sitting at a table close contact, usually less than six feet. You know, if your table's anything like mine, it's not more than six feet long. Prolonged contact, both of those are problematic. And eating, which is introducing our hands into our face, nose, and mouth. So at baseline, this is a risky behavior. And again, if you have been in a complete plastic bubble and have had zero exposure with anyone for two weeks, you could potentially make the argument, but it's risk-benefit, and you have to ask yourself the what-ifs um, and this is a vulnerable population. So I, unfortunately, will not be sharing a meal with my mom. Yeah, I know. It's tough. I mean, perhaps you could stay outside with the mask right. on and wave. I will do that. Okay. I will wave from a distance. All right. That's something, at least. Yeah. All right. Next question. With the nicer weather upon us and kids having fun blowing bubbles, can COVID-19 be transmitted through bubbles? And what about an inflated balloon mm. that pops? I the, I would never even think no. of these questions. I wouldn't either. And I can assure you that um, neither has the NIH or the CDC yet. Um, I think we have to be careful not to overthink this and go too far over the edge in terms of the what ifs. You know, in terms of bubbles, though, it is interesting because there's soap in there. That's how the bubbles kind of work. So there's probably the virus would be disrupted by that soap viral interface. The hot air balloon blowing up latex balloons, no one knows that. I mean, I think just control the things you can control. This next question, can you please explain how the virus can mutate to a more dangerous form? Yeah, so when you talk about mutations of viruses, remember, this is their job. This is what they do. This is not a surprise. We know that this is going to happen. Sometimes those mutations are so trivial that they have no effect on function. But there's always the potential that as they adapt to their new host, which is us humans, it could become stronger or weaker. In terms of being more dangerous, it could attach to a cell more readily. It could replicate or multiply more quickly um, and it can become more resistant to whatever treatments we have. We see that sometimes with influenza. So all of those are possibilities, but no evidence that that has happened thus far with COVID-19. All right. This next question I know is one that you are on a personal level contemplating as well Mm. as so many parents are. My youngest is supposed to start college in the fall. As a parent, should I feel safe with them attending? No easy answer to this question, Amy. I I am going to share with you my my personal opinion as a mom and a doctor, which is that we can't put our kids in a sterile plastic bubble environment. In general, this is a low-risk population. Of course, they have to interact with people who may be more vulnerable, but there has to be some kind of measure and checks and balances that it's not an all-or-none phenomenon. I also tend to look at many colleges or universities like they could be small cities. So if they are able to test, trace, isolate, and kind of respond and adapt to trends going up or down, I think that might be the answer. I am hoping that they find a way. 
All right. You can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Thank you. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. As Americans stock up on essentials, manufacturers of packaged goods are working tirelessly to keep their products on store shelves. My next guest knows a thing or two about that. He is in charge of some of the most recognizable brands in the country. In fact, I think there's a pretty good chance some of his products are in your pantry right now. Here to discuss his company's efforts during the pandemic is president and CEO of Campbell's Soup Company, Mark Klaus. Mark, thanks for being with us. And we know that so many people are now relying on packaged food. So how do you make sure your supply chain isn't affected by this crisis? You know, it's a challenge. Uh, You know, this is a time where we've been seeing demand at, at almost unprecedented levels. But I got to tell you, I can't be more inspired by the way the Campbell's team has really stepped up to this crisis, and especially those uh, that are working on our front lines, the folks in the plants, in our distribution centers, even the frontline sales teams uh, have done an amazing job really answering the call of not just running a business, but ensuring that food is on the shelves and in the communities uh, where people really need it right now. And I think to do that, what we've tried to do as a company uh, is really simplify the mission. It's basically two things. One, first and foremost, taking care of each other. And then two, making sure that we can produce uh, and distribute food as as safely and as quickly as possible. And I think so far that the team has really done an amazing job. As you mentioned, supply important, but even more important is the safety of your employees. What are you doing to protect them right now? Yeah, I think very early on in the process, we established some pretty rigorous protocols for our facilities. And and what I mean by a protocol, what do we do if someone's displaying symptoms of the virus? What if someone's in a household where another member of the household has the virus, or even if you were exposed to someone uh, that may have been exposed to it? And so we've been very responsive in using things like quarantine uh, as as a tool, and then, of course, heightened sanitation as we move forward. We also worked quickly to get personal protection equipment, including thermal imaging, uh, at a single point of entry for all of our facilities. And I do think the other side of this, though, an important aspect of this is also the financial well-being of our teams. And so we also fairly early on made the decision for those that are working on the front line to do things to ensure that we're protecting and kind of taking, you know, off their shoulders or off their mind the worry about if, hey, I'm out sick or I'm asked to be in quarantine, we're going to continue to pay you. And we've also increased our hourly wages by $2 an hour. And for our supervisors, our salaried supervisors in the plants and on the front line, we've added $100 a week as a bonus to try to take care of things like added child care or other things they may be facing. That's incredible. And we also know that Campbell's is giving back to the community at large as well. Yeah, you know, Amy, it's it's one of the things early on that I think we recognize that as the constraint for supply and the, the demand patterns that we were seeing in grocery stores, one part of the community that was hurt the hardest were hunger programs and food banks. And so I think what we tried to do is get the balance right. So, you know, we've dedicated runs on certain products so that we know right up front that what we run on this day is going to go to local food banks. We've partnered with Feeding America. We have 33 communities that we operate in, and I'm really proud 
of the teams. We, you know, we've provided about four and a half million dollars of food and money. But perhaps what's even more um, impressive or inspiring is how our local employees are working together with those communities to distribute that product, uh, to make sure that we're doing things like handmade masks coming out of our uh, facilities. Like I said, we've had no shortage uh, of inspirational moments in a really tough situation. Well, that is a beautiful thing to witness. Thank you so much for all that you were doing. Mark Klaus, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Amy. All right, final thoughts now from Dr. Jen Ashton. Well, Amy, you inspired me yesterday. You you um, teased me because we use a lot of acronyms in medicine, but I wanted to hit you with a great one with the acronym COVID, C-O-V-I-D. And I wanted to suggest that you think of this. Can one visualize improvise and devise. We are in uncharted territory. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and it is important psychologically, physically, medically, scientifically to be able to visualize where we are, where we've come, where we may be going. Um, that is very important in, ter in terms of the emotions that we experience and the brain connections that are involved in that. And then improvise. We are really living in a different world now. Um, and I, we've seen so many examples of creativity um, and ability to improvise and then devise. Can we figure out a way to bring hope into our lives, bring gratitude into our lives, keep our mental and physical well-being going as we go through the next weeks, months, potentially years. So COVID, can one visualize, improvise, and devise? You just made COVID not seem so scary anymore. <laughs> and uh, you just gave it a positive spin. Only you could do that, Thank Dr. You, Jen my Ashton. Dear. When we come back, the nurse with the brainstorm that is helping her patients thrive in the COVID-19 crisis. We're going to be right back. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Anything to help the people, especially in a time like this, when it's real hard times, um, is something that I'm about. I want to be here to help spread the word. And also, I'm giving a, a coward experience where, you know, the fans get a chance to jet ski with me in Miami and I'll take them to dinner. And, um, you know, anything to help the people, that's what I'm about. And not just through a pandemic all the time. That's what we're about. That is DJ Khaled, just one of many big names in music, sports, TV and movies, all coming together for the All In Challenge, helping to raise more than $32 million to feed those whose next meal is suddenly in doubt in the COVID-19 pandemic. Khaled speaking with our Lindsay Davis there on ABC News Prime. Well, now to the nation's heartland during this Nurses Appreciation Week and the work of one essential healthcare worker whose personal mission to support her diabetes patients is helping to save lives. So my name is Bridget Sapple. I am a registered nurse at Mercy One Clinic in Waterloo, Iowa, and I've been there for 11 years now. We see a lot of longtime diabetics. Five years ago, I started a program called Focus on Diabetes because I saw a need for additional education outside of clinical practice. My grandfather was diabetic, and my father, who died at the young age of 64, was diabetic as well. So I really understand what diabetes does to a family and an individual. So when the pandemic started, I was sitting with a patient in the clinic, and they were explaining to me how they could not find alcohol pads. And I came up with an idea, a 
small program that I want to do called Focus on Diabetes COVID-19 Assist, where we are putting together diabetic packages to provide people in the community with essential supplies that I know they can find out there. For some patients that have tested positive for COVID-19, I have taken packages to their home, dropped them off on their doorsteps. Others, we are planning to do a drive-through and pickup, and so they can just stay in their cars, we'll bring it to their car and, and hand it to them that way. I only have enough uh, supply to serve 200 people right now. If I had more resources or I got more items, I would be able to essentially serve more people. Anywhere from Iowa to Pittsburgh to Indiana, I've gotten messages from all over the country of people who are really in need of these supplies that have been hoarded and the people who need it are, are not able to care for themselves. Diabetes is a disease that is hard to manage on your own and just having the support of someone in the community to do something as simple as provide alcohol pass that you cannot find for months could be a big deal for someone who's um, having a hard time. This work really gives me life and gives me purpose. And so this is what I truly love to do. We thank Bridget so much for her service and of course for all of you nurses out there always showing up for the rest of us. Thank you. That's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News. America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.